0: Hey, everybody, welcome to Love It or Leave It. We are going to do a special crossover episode. So uh, first, I'm going to talk to John Favreau, Dan Pfeiffer, two of the top four hosts of Pod Save America, and we're going to talk through some of the latest developments as we head into the... What are you looking at me like? What are you making? You're in. You're here. Hi, John.
1: (laughs) Hello. (laughs) Good to be here on your show. Thanks for having us.
0: And uh, so we're going to talk about the latest developments on immigration, SCOTUS, and outrage rising in the Democratic Party base. And then we're going to go to the live show I recorded uh, on Friday where we covered the rest of the week's news. So we smashed it together, and we bring it to you now. So thinking about what to talk about today, the news has pretty much been the same for
1: two weeks. (laughs) Um, But there were a few big-picture scene-setting stories this week about the Democratic Party that I thought we could dig into a little bit. Um, So both of them ran over the weekend. The New York Times headline is, As Trump consolidates power, Democrats confront a rebellion in their ranks. Sounds scary. Um, And the Washington Post headline is, A bad week for Democrats gives rise to a big problem. Outrage could become an obstacle in midterms. So the lead of the Washington Post one is, uh, and the Washington Post was Michael Scherer, and uh, the New York Times was Jonathan Martin and Alex Burns. So the lead of the Washington Post story is, Growing liberal agitation over a pivotal Supreme Court retirement and a simmering crisis about immigrant-child separation have left Democratic leaders scrambling to keep the political outrage they'd counted on to fuel midterm election wins from becoming a liability for the party. Now, there's a few things conflated in these stories. There's questions about ideology, there's questions about strategy and tactics, and there's questions about tone and message. Let's start with ideology. Are either of you concerned that the Democratic Party is moving too far to the left on any issues? Dan, we'll start with
0: you. No, I'm not. Love it? (laughs) No. (laughs) My answer to you is no. (laughs) Uh, Okay, Dan, you elaborate, and then love it, you can elaborate.
2: The premise of these stories, they're a a genre of stories that have existed for as long as Democrats have either been in power or out of power, and they are called Dems in Disarray (laughs) stories, which means (laughs) we are panicking, things are all screwed up, and... In a sense, they are because we control nothing. So I don't know what they're worried about us blowing, but we control nothing. Ideology-wise, I think two things. One, we have good candidates running races specific to their districts and states. And it's different whether it is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or someone running here in California 10 or Beto O'Rourke in Texas. What is more – the line that runs through – the the best campaigns and the best candidates has not been ideology; it has been authenticity. People are running authentic and passioned races that they, the people can feel. It, it doesn't feel like politics as usual. Second, this I think that both of these stories in, and I think this will be true in all the different categories you race, particularly ideology, are using a outdated way of thinking about politics. Yeah, Donald Trump ran a entirely anti ideological campaign to win. He was both conservative and liberal. Uh, He was a populist. He was a corporatist, all the things. And to try to treat this like it is the 1992 healthcare battle doesn't understand politics in this day and age.
1: I think you're right on the ideology thing. Like this idea that is so ingrained in – and it's not just punditry and reporting. I think there are people within the Democratic Party, strategists, pollsters, ex-politicians, current politicians who also have the same concern. sometimes. They think about this like imaginary Midwestern voter – And this Midwestern voter, when he or she hears the the term Medicare for all or federal jobs guarantee or debt-free college or something like that, suddenly they think, oh, that is way too far to the left on the spectrum for me. And I'm not that far left on the spectrum. And I don't think that comports with any reality that we've seen in the last couple of elections. especially, like you said, Dan, Donald
0: Trump is president. (laughs) These are ideas that poll well. Right. These are ideas that have broad-based appeal. Medicare for All has broad-based appeal. Universal college, universal pre-K, the so-called radical liberal ideas that are that are pulling the party too far to the left. These are simple, elegant, political solutions that people can understand and rally behind. And the idea that there's somebody who would vote Democrat but then thinks, oh, that's too much pre-K. <laughs> that's too many kids getting <laughs> pre-K for me. One of the
1: silver linings from, from Donald Trump winning is that it should liberate us from worrying about uh, both electability and how each policy position is going to play in various districts. If you don't like Medicare for all because you think as a policy, it may not work well. If you think a certain policy costs too much money and you'd rather spend that money on something else, all these things, that's fine. On a substantive level, if you're a candidate running and you don't agree with one policy or the other, totally get that. Do not let yourself get stuck in the trap of worrying about whether a policy is going to poll specifically one, one place or the other, partly because you can message these policies almost any way you want. Voters make choices based on values, based on big goals, based on outcomes, and the ins and outs of the specific policy, like we can worry about that
0: once we're actually in power governing we've talked a lot about the fact that oh you know people were treat, you know parsing data but then losing the big picture and being too specific the same happens on policy there's the same kind of polling and parsing on what policy appeals to who and and whether or not you should talk about something in this district versus that district and the idea if you're looking at politics in 2018 and thinking oh this is a surgical operation <laughs> this is going to be about very specific tweaks like we don't sledgehammers, not scalpels, right? You need, (laughs) you need to break through and you need to not worry about what the attack is going to be from Donald Trump or what the attack is going to be from your opponent. Because the idea that there's a system for analyzing and breaking down your policy views in a sophisticated way, and then presenting that analysis to voters is just not real. It's not real. There is no, that policy conversation Maybe it used to happen in D.C. It barely happens there anymore. You need to have something you can say that is big, that you can stand behind, that can make sense to people. And it needs to be able to weather the incredible assault of nonsense to make it in front of somebody's Facebook feed. And parsing whether or not you're for a public option versus Medicare for all, I think, is just a waste of time.
2: I think that's right. I'll say one more thing on this, which is the worst elements of bad democratic consultant and political thinking is always when you try to build your message and policy in anticipation of what the Republican attack is going to be. Mm. And that is exactly what is happening like with Medicare for all. Cause here you have, essentially you have Medicare, one of the most popular government programs in history being expanded to everyone, which is popular, but we don't want to talk about it because we, we fear how it can be demagogued, By the Republicans and that that's when we'll lose. And there are two problems with that. One, that's just a terrible way of thinking that we're going to censor what we say because we think Republicans, Donald Trump may tweet about it. But it's also deeply naive about how they will message things in the Donald Trump era, because no matter what the Democrats position is on abolish ICE or immigration reform, Donald Trump will say that you have sided with the animals of MS-13. You have some freedom to be for what you want to be for, and not, and like we are, we should be liberated in this era to say what we believe in, which will be better off than because it doesn't matter what we do. Donald Trump will give accuse us of the worst thing humanly possible.
0: The demagoguing is here. It's been happening for a while. <laughs> <laughs> They've gone demagoguing crazy. Uh, the idea that like if like Kamala Harris or Kirsten Gillibrand didn't come out for abolishing ICE at some point because that's where the base is pushing them, that Donald Trump would be like, I was going to unleash. A series of completely dishonest attacks on these people for siding with ISIS. But now that they've moderated slightly on this position, I'm standing down. (laughs) Donald Trump is standing down. And it's not just Donald Trump. The whole Republican Party has been like that. And
1: they've been like that before Trump. They, they, They went crazy during the Obama era.
0: Probably a little bit before. (laughs) We spent weeks hearing from Republicans on the Hill saying things like, well, I agree that children shouldn't be hostages. I never wanted children to be hostages or pawns in this game of politics. But then they were immediately quite comfortable saying, seems to me like the Democrats are all for open borders and we're for border security. So they, they want the demagoguery. They just want to do it in the more sophisticated DC fashion.
1: Right. And I think the other thing to keep in mind is the reason that this moment requires bolder policy solutions it's not just Trump and the Republicans are in charge now and they've gone crazy and so we can say whatever we want. We're also dealing with rising inequality, stagnant wages, um, now more people are losing their health care since Trump became president. Like there's an economic transformation that has been happening in this country over the last couple decades. That um, you know, in the in the eight years of the Obama administration, Obama pulled us out of crisis, pulled us out of a near depression, uh, brought us back to where we were before. But as he acknowledged too, before, where we were before the Great Recession wasn't good enough, and it has only gotten worse since then. And at some point, we have to think to ourselves, what are the policy solutions that will meet the magnitude of the economic challenge that most people in this country are facing every
0: single day? Barack Obama came in, in in a period of incredible turmoil and he was part of a democratic primary that actually moved the party to the left, but landed at a place of the Affordable Care Act as a compromised market-based solution with uh, with expansion of Medicaid, et cetera, et cetera, and sort of digging out from this incredible crises from incredible crisis. And even in that moment, even when he was seen by some on the left as being too pragmatic, what did the Republicans do? They didn't they didn't come and help. Democrats being pragmatic and seeking out compromise. We did it on taxes. We did it on the debt ceiling. We did it on health care. Spent six months dancing with uh, Chuck Grassley. What happened was we passed a bunch of incredibly important legislation that tried to solve some pretty big problems and do so in a way that required compromise and hard politics. Hard choices, is hard, that you're going to say? I was not going to say hard choices. <laughs> I was going to say decision points, actually. <laughs> I was going to refer to them as decision points. But what do the Republicans do? They turn those things into socialism and have spent the last two and a half years trying to undo every single one of them. So if we're going to try to actually solve problems, we need to go big and push this country towards bigger answers to these hard questions, because no matter what we do, there is a right wing that will undo anything, no matter how moderated, no matter how practical.
1: Once you start screaming about uh, death panels, about a plan that was modeled after Mitt Romney's healthcare plan in (laughs) Massachusetts, you've sort of gone over the ledge there. Yeah,
0: we stole it from the Heritage Foundation.
1: Um, (laughs) So let's talk about, the second thing is let's talk about the grassroots leadership divide. We saw Joe Crowley defeated, okay? This is someone who, obviously, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is further to the left than Crowley, but Crowley, one of the more progressive members of Congress, one of the first members of Congress to embrace Medicare for all. He's defeated. Uh, We've heard Democrats criticize Pelosi and Schumer for not fighting hard enough. There's now an expectation among some uh, in the grassroots that we can block Trump's Supreme Court pick when, you know, we have 49 votes. So it, it is something slightly different than ideology here that is driving sort of a grassroots versus why can't these Democrats in Washington fight hard enough? Dan, what, what do you think's going on there?
2: Like everything else in these, not just these two articles, but the general conversation with this, we've conflated a thousand things together, Yeah, right? There are differences between the approach of... Democrats in Washington and sort of the, in the grassroots groups, whether it's Swing Left, Indivisible, Moms Demand, um, and everyone else who's out there. And that is usually more in the Senate than the House. And that is usually around Chuck Schumer trying to manage the politics of a bunch of members running in states that Trump won. And I think that that is a very tough challenge for Chuck Schumer. And because he doesn't actually control what Joe Manchin does. Like he could tell Joe Manchin, "Don't vote vote against whoever Trump puts up for the Supreme Court." And Joe Manchin could say, "I'm going to, I'm just going to vote for him." I mean, let's not forget Joe Manchin shot Barack Obama's climate change bill with a gun in a television ad. So he's not going to be our friend on all things. <laughs> that is different than Joe Crowley's defeat. Hmm. Those are just two different things. They are probably tangentially related, but they are different. I've seen this before. I saw this in 2004, after or in to, in the early years of the Bush era when Move On and all these other anti-Iraq war groups sprung up. And I do think that it, to the credit of some in the Democratic establishment, they are being much more welcoming of swing left and indivisible in these groups than uh, has previously happened. Like there seems to be less of a territorialism and a condescension from Washington. And there are, maybe there, maybe some of it's co-opting and it's more malicious than it appears, but there seems to be, everyone seems to want to share the stage. My basic view is we should get out of the way and let these grassroots groups lead because I don't know of anyone in Washington or ourselves included who have a sterling record in the 2016 election that suggests that we have all the right answers for this. And so we should be aligning ourselves with the groups who are mostly most closely tied to the grassroots enthusiasm that's fueling our, the electoral victories we've had over the last two years.
1: Dan, I heard a couple people – I saw a couple people on Twitter say – if only Obama had fought harder for Merrick Garland uh, back when he nominated Merrick Garland, we might not be in this mess right now. Could we just go back? Like, Was there anything else that Barack Obama or the Senate Democrats could have done to put Merrick Garland on the bench back in uh, 15, 16, whatever it was?
2: From my perspective, no. Mitch McConnell controlled the power. If there was nothing Barack Obama, Harry Reid, who was the leader at the time, could do— to make Mitch McConnell put the nomination of Merrick Garland on the floor. That is a power that solely he had. And as long as the Republicans stuck together, nothing could done it. No, no number of speeches could have forced him to do it. Barack Obama couldn't have gone to his house and made a compelling case and got Mitch McConnell to do it because Mitch McConnell operates entirely on cold calculating political incentives. And he had a very strong political incentive to not do this. And, I think there it, the critique that I think can be given to the entire party is we maybe we did not we did not do a good enough job of telling people what was at stake mm. if let's so so Garland's not going to get the position while Barack Obama's president. So now there's a Supreme Court seat at stake in the election. And I think as has been true for a long time with Democrats in questions around judges and Supreme Court, we haven't convinced people why this is so goddamn important, and now we are paying for that in the most painful ways possible. Because it did work for Republicans. I did a a like at a panel before the election uh, with Se Cup, who uh, the CNN commentator who's a never Trumper, and I th- and we'd done a bunch of panels together. Usually, it was mostly people who didn't love Trump. And we basically got shouted out of the room because no matter how much you didn't like Trump, these Republicans wanted the Supreme Court seat. Like that, that became the permission structure to support him against everything else, his uh, inexperience, his racism, his misogyny, everything else was we get the Supreme Court seat. And frankly, abortion was at stake. And we could, there's nothing to say that we could not have made that argument better on our side. It wouldn't have got Merrick Garland in the seat in that time period, but it would have maybe helped explain to people why the seat is so important.
0: You know, we don't know what it would look like if Mitch McConnell was holding up a Supreme Court seat, and Hillary Clinton's opponent was Marco Rubio, and he was up in the polls by four points, right? We don't know how we would be feeling during that time if, if the idea of Trump winning wasn't seen as being more remote than it actually was. I don't believe, barring basically turning his presidency into a campaign for that Supreme Court justice seat, right? Having like basically turned it into the biggest and most important issue he was facing to put pressure on other Republicans. And I don't even know if that would have worked. Who knows? But I do think one of the, the reasons I think people are bringing it up is because I think we all look back on that period of time and Garland's not getting seated or the idea of Trump making the appointment that that Mitch McConnell stole went from being a kind of hypothetical we couldn't deal with emotionally to an irreversible reality that night on election day we weren't because we thought hillary clinton was going to win what mitch mcconnell was doing was despicable but we weren't honest with ourselves about the risks because we weren't honest with ourselves about the risk of donald trump becoming president
1: and that carries over into a whole bunch of different issues right um, but i do think like Sometimes people equate Democrats not having power with Democrats not fighting hard enough. We just have to remember that as we go forward in the Supreme Court fight. I mean, look, this this is what happened during the whole shutdown over the Dreamers. You know, and we did this on this podcast. We pushed all the Democrats to say that they will not, you know, they're not going to fund deportations of Dreamers, and we're going to, you know, they're looking for a compromise here. And they all did it, and then they folded after 24, 48 hours, but... Even, and what
0: a day of courage it was! <laughs>
1: but even <laughs> even if they had held tight for a week, two weeks, I, I think they should have. But I also couldn't say for sure whether Republicans and Donald Trump ever would have backed down from that and said, "Okay, sure, we will, um, we'll do what you want to do." I think I we got think,
0: our I, I think we got our answer when he started separating children from no, right, parents. Exactly. He turned down twenty five exactly. billion for the wall, right. refused to help the Dreamers, and then decided. To separate families at the border, I think we knew what Donald Trump was going to do all along.
2: I think part of this is expectations management. This is on Schumer and Pelosi, right? Which is mm. they let people believe, and we let people believe, frankly, uh, that you, we could win that fight when that was highly unlikely. And if it, it just everyone, everyone listening to this knows this, but many of your friends may not, which is if every Democrat votes against this Supreme Court nominee and every Republican votes for it. They will get the seat. And so there is like so there's two things. One, there's letting people know that the fight is going to be really hard, and we may lose. But then there was also and this this is goes to Senate Democrats, understanding the importance of having the fight even if you lose, right? because fighting and losing is better than not fighting at all. For and sure. I think that is very important because that is the that is the the ultimate question that I think is so important for. Schumer, Pelosi, the entire Democratic Party establishment is, is – they have to demonstrate to the people who are – who marched – in the women's march, who marched for our lives, who stormed airports. They have to show to those people that they, our party, and these leaders are a worthy vessel for that enthusiasm and that is going to require having tough fights even if we lose them and so doing this calculation of we're probably going to lose so we're going to you know we're going to save our powder for another day is uh i think is a huge strategic error
0: the powder is unlimited <laughs> <laughs> yeah and also but but dan i actually think it's more than that i don't think these fights are just about signaling to the base signaling to the activists that we're willing to fight i think you have the fight because the fight and the argument leaves a mark, and it leaves a mark on the issues we care about. If we make the Supreme Court battle one that is covered as if there is an actual chance, maybe a small chance, but a chance that we can maybe stop one nominee or maybe st- or stop a more heinous nominee or cause it to be controversial, cause it to be a negative for Republicans, that'll be valuable in the fall. That'll remind people that we just had this big argument over criminalizing abortion over pre-existing conditions. Um, so I think it has value even to to the people that are not hardcore democrats but are going to start tuning in in the fall anyway.
1: Uh so let's talk about tone and message. Uh I think all three of us would uh very much agree that the entire civility debate is um uh, obscene. Um <laughs> 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 But how how about this whole like, you know, too much outrage, too much anger.
0: Yeah, I, I <laughs> pundits need to decide how hot they want democratic voters to be all right it's like the goldilocks thing like oh they're getting a little too angry that's gonna alienate a group of people in the midwest i've never met oh they're not angry enough they're not gonna get the votes they need in the parts of new york i've never been to like what What do you want you want a passionate but not too passionate angry but not too angry ready to vote but not crazy like what do you want what do you want what do you want a democratic base voter to be like how loud this loud a little bit quieter
2: the thing is Fucking outrageous things are happening all across this country. We should be outraged. And this idea that some pundit in Washington knows what the exact right temperature that, that voters want their politicians to be is asinine. They've never known the answer. They certainly don't know it now.
1: People are outraged. And they're angry because uh, there's not enough democracy in our democracy. <laughs> you know, they're outraged because people's civil rights and civil liberties are being trampled, and we're a country that says that we believe in civil rights and civil liberties. Like, that's what people are outraged about. But I also think that there's a—this is another conflation here, too. They're conflating how activists and people on the ground, people at these marches feel with what politicians—how politicians should comport themselves. And I think if— you are an activist, if you're an organizer, if you're someone who's just paying attention to the politics for the very first time, and you're angry and you're upset, then fucking go be angry and upset because you deserve to be because of what's happened here. But, like, please vote. You, you Channel that anger in a productive way, which is registering people to vote, voting, going to marches, knocking on doors, making phone calls. Do that. Don't just be angry and scream into the Twitter sphere. Um, but as far as politicians go, as far as candidates who are running... Um, I haven't really seen an angry, fire-breathing Democratic candidate who makes their whole campaign, his or her whole campaign, about being angry. Like, we've talked about this before. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, she definitely had a lot of passion. And she was angry on behalf of uh, the people that she will go on to represent. But she didn't, and she said this herself. She didn't spend most of her campaign talking about Trump.
0: It's a, it's such a funny, like, it goes actually to the same thing about, like, ugh, this Red Hen restaurant is playing right into Trump's hands. They're not in politics. They're just a group of people with a restaurant. It's like, these articles are like, Democratic voters may be presenting a problem with Democratic voters in the fall. Like, wh- what are you talking about?
1: Well, these are just, these are people. <laughs> They're just people in the world. Some guy showed up to a fucking immigration uh, protest with a gun, pulled a gun on the protesters, um, yelled womp womp because he decided to parrot Corey fucking Lewandowski. And our
0: country can't... Like, how no, stupid you, does it have to get? Now that's a slogan of white nationalism. But womp also, womp.
1: You didn't hear a bunch of pundits saying, oh, Republicans have to watch themselves because that guy who pulled a gun on the protesters represents the Republican Party. And why would he... Why would the that guy give the Democrats such a gift by pulling a... No, you didn't hear anything about that. So
2: why, Nothing. Do, you
0: guys, why do you guys think that is? So what is the... What is the underlying assumptions that lead— Because these pundits in D.C. are on the
1: side of the Democrats, but they can't say that <laughs> because they must be unbiased at all times and they must be analytic at all times. And so what they spend most of their time doing is saying, be better, Democrats. Right. And <laughs> be, act like— act civilly act how I think you should act because I am a pundit in Washington and here's and how I, I want you to be because you very side. serious things and I believe in very serious ways of acting and being and and stuff like that. It's like right right That's it's like
0: these articles are like they close the door and now it's just family and let's talk amongst ourselves. Look at those crazy people across the street. You want to be like them? We're not like them, right? We're better than that. Let's keep it let's keep it close. But of course it's on the internet.
2: It's <laughs> also just we need a new narrative, right? For like weeks it was the country, you know, everything's falling apart for Trump because for the first time ever, he's facing political accountability for his child separation policy. We, we stuck to the same story for two weeks. So what's the new story? Democrats in disarray. right? And like you, these stories also swerve out of their lane to make this point. Like I read this Washington Post article that we mentioned here and the main person quoted in it, is it Chuck Schumer? Is it Nancy Pelosi? Is it an upstart Democrat like Beto O'Rourke or Stacey Abrams? No. It's Michael fucking more. I know, man. Like what you quote, from a <laughs> appearance on the Bill Maher show, like there is nothing more disconnected than what is actually gonna matter to voters, activists, politicians, than what Michael Moore said to Bill Maher. We're looking. We like it is a narrative in search of. Of a story, it is.
1: I know it is That's foolish. What, it's funny We've, we
2: spent ten minutes talking about it. Well, everyone out there should not read these stories if you haven't read them already. Ignore them and get back to fucking work because it doesn't matter what a pundit says about about whether your attitude or your outrage or your policy is going is, go, is going to affect the election. Their predictions are pointless. They're meaningless and they're usually wrong. We actually control what happens here by turning out to vote because there are more of us than them. So. Like it's like it's actually pretty simple, and the rest of this is just filling space until the votes actually start getting cast.
1: That is that is what they do well. I mean, look the the New York Times story I thought was better because the New York Times story basically concluded like, and this might actually help Democrats win. <laughs> the Washington the Washington Post story was completely absurd. I, yeah, the yeah. Michael Moore thing I was just like, but this this is what's this is of course the whole problem. This is what happens is. A a small incident, an isolated incident happens, like the red hen thing or, you know, Michael Moore saying that, and people pick it up, and that becomes the narrative in D.C.
2: Also, what's the outrageous thing they called for? Peaceful protest. He called for peaceful protest. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> what a fucking radical.
1: <laughs> anyway, so I think we're fine. <laughs> Everyone feel good?
0: No.
2: <laughs> I'm, out, I'm outraged. <laughs> I just,
0: it's just like... So let's just like the sequence of events, just so people understand, is uh, a person who won for your votes became president, appointed a stolen Supreme Court seat. They used that Supreme Court seat to steal a bunch more power for their constituencies of corporations uh, and the rich. Then the president started separating children from families to send a cruel message to people seeking a better life against terrible, terrible odds. Democrats have responded by being outraged, passionate and protesting. And the question is, will this hurt us?
1: Seems like a good week for Donald Trump. One <laughs>
0: like, of
1: Trump's best weeks.
0: <laughs> well, That's, I saw an AP headline that said that. <laughs> Another royal flush from President Trump. Can I ask you guys one more question about this? Do you think any piece of this kind of story about, oh, the Democrats are too outraged, oh, the Democrats are being too pulled too far in a radical direction, do you think there's some part of it that stems from an, an, a belief on the part of some reporters, a quiet belief that there is still this silent majority? that there is still this group of people who will be alienated by this kind of thing? I mean, that could
1: be possible with the reporters. I don't tend to think of a silent majority as this this silent majority that that secretly loves Donald Trump and is going to come out to vote for him. I am always mindful of the fact that that most of the country does not pay attention to politics as closely as all of us (laughs) and most of the people who listen to this podcast. But a good chunk of that country still votes. And they are people who don't pay as close attention to the news. They don't consume politics like we do. And I always think to myself, when they turn on the news, when they finally pay attention closer to the election, what are they going to see from Democratic candidates versus Republican candidates? And I do think that impression that we have on people who, who aren't as aware as we are of all the crazy shit that's going on, they know that bad things are happening. They know that Trump is president. They probably don't like Donald Trump. But they're thinking to themselves, OK, I don't like Donald Trump. He's pretty fucking crazy. He's got the tweets. Everything's good. The country seems like it's going to hell in a handbasket. There's like a lot of shit going on. But um, I don't know. What are the Democrats up to? What are they going to do? And I hope that and what they see is, is Chuck is- Schumer in front of a gas station. <laughs> <laughs> no, I hope what, I hope what they see are candidates who are offering big, bold solutions to the problems that they face in their lives. And they're telling them. I am going to fight like hell for you and try to make this country a little bit better. Like that's what I hope they see, and I hope they don't see all of these little controversies. So I think to the extent that we have to discipline ourselves to make sure that that message gets out, which I think, Ocasio Cortez did successfully, which I think Conor Lamb did successfully. People across the spectrum have done that successfully so far, which is why I'm hopeful about November.
0: Yeah, d- just one, like it's it's also actually that's something that's really important too, because even if even if you are a Democrat who thinks that a abolishing ICE is a bad idea because you're a centrist and you think it's bad politically because you're a centrist it is still a better idea to just say what you think than it is to spend your days trying to police the words of other democrats
1: yes that is true enough like if you have an opportunity to go on background or go on record with a reporter who's asking you about dems and disarray stories just don't or just at least talk about the issues that you believe in, talk about your policy positions, talk about what you think. Don't start don't start being a pundit. Leave that to leave that to the pros like us. <laughs> Dan,
0: do you think the background brigades are going to hear and heed John's message? Do you think that we will finally crush the spirits of the Unnamed strategists. of the unnamed strategists? roiling democratic to, politics yes, wanted to
1: speak anonymously so he could speak freely about the intraparty divisions because <laughs> they're still trying to make money. I think the that
2: there are going to be reporters walking around Washington DC all summer with so much time on their hands. Cause there's been no one calling them to, t- to talk about why the democratic party is fucked up. We'll quote on background for food. That's what their signs will say. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I think the last thing I'll say on this before I let you go is, uh, or let you segue us into the next section is what all of this boils down to is a common belief among reporters, pundits, politicians, consultants that caution is a better path than courage in campaigns. And there is basically zero history of that being true.
0: Thanks to John and Dan for doing this news update. When we come back, we will have our live show with Tani Newsom, Jose Antonio Vargas, and Molly Lambert. It was a great show. So you know, keep listening. <laughs> Hello, friends of Los Angeles. Thank you for coming to The Late Show. Look at this crowd, you're already so fucked up. Barely functional, your people are a mess. Is that truffle mac and cheese? Ugh, I could smell that fucking shit from here. Let's talk about truffle oil for a second. I was a person minding my own business in a place called America. When someone said, do you want truffles? Is there truffle oil? I was like, oh, like chocolates? Like chocolate truffles. And slowly over about the last 10 years, this idea of this fancy food that pigs find in Italy <laughs> slowly sort of came down from the, from the Mount Olympus of the Michelin restaurants and slowly descended downward to uh, other places. <laughs> And it's ended up everywhere in the form of something called truffle oil. Truffle oil is the most disgusting thing I have ever smelled. I don't understand how you people are putting it in your bodies. I don't think truffles have gotten anywhere near it. I think it's totally artificial. And it's a giant scam, okay, to take macaroni and cheese, which is cheap, and call it truffled macaroni and cheese, which is expensive. And I'm sure that this is something I'm not supposed to highlight here. (laughs) But all truffle, like everyone's like, whoa, this truffle oil chen. Oh, it's so weird how you can make everything $2 more by pouring five cents worth of garbage on top of it and fucking pretentious yokels like yourself. We're like, whoa, what am I in Paris? Sure, truffles. I'll try the truffle oil. Champagne for everyone. Truffles here at a comedy club? That's amazing. I'll surely pay a $2 premium for I think that's something that's made out of petroleum. (laughs) It smells so much like fucking truffles right here and I genuinely, what are you filming this for? What are you gonna do with this content? You better not put a fucking ad in front of it. All right, let's start the show guys. You wanna start the show? She's an actor and comedian from Bajillion Dollar Properties, co host of Yo, Is This Racist, an awesome podcast, and she has a new podcast and recording project, The Super Group. Please welcome Tawny Newsome. Hi, Tawny. How How are you? Good. He's the founder of Define American and the author of the upcoming book, Dear America Notes of an Undocumented Citizen. Please welcome Jose Antonio Vargas. Hello, hello yeah, Hi. <laughs>
3: hi. <laughs> What's up?
0: Cool, cool, cool. Uh she's the host of the podcast Night Call and an organizer with No Olympics LA. Please welcome Molly Lambert. Hi, Molly. Hi. How are you? Good. What is No Olympics?
4: Nolympics is a group uh that opposes the Olympics in different cities and right now in Los Angeles in okay. 2028. 20, uh we talk about just the ways that the Olympics uh, exacerbate things like gentrification and homeless sweeps and stuff in different cities, Uh, and in LA they voted to have the Olympics in 2028 without any public input from people in Los Angeles Uh, and if it goes over budget, which it always does, then uh, people in California have to pay
0: for it. So that's something to look forward to Uh, (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's get into it. What a week this is going to be airing uh, after the July 4th break, a day where we celebrate America at a time when I think a lot of us feel like we're losing the country that we never thought was perfect, but that we did believe was better than this. Uh, Tani, I will start with you. How, how discouraged are you right now, and what are you finding is helping you kind of out of it?
5: Oh, I recommend everyone just get a black parent during this time, because any, like if you can just rustle one up, it'll really help. Cause anytime I'm like, whoa, it's me, the world is so hard. My dad's like, drinking fountains. And like, he'll just lay into me about shit that I cannot even fathom. So I mean, as down as I want to get, I just got to drive like seven hours north See Dominic Newsom and be like, I just have to complain about some low-level shit and have him verbally smack me back into my right mind. So everyone just find a black parent. That should be super easy. There should be an app. <laughs> black dad.
0: It's black. Da- it's 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 black dad, but there's two D's and no vowels. Yeah, there's
5: no vowels. So doesn't that just look like blickeded?
0: It's blicked. Blickeded. Check it out on BlickDid. Oh no, BlickDid got taken over by white supremacists.
5: Oh damn, isn't that the way? Fucking Silicon Valley.
0: What a shame, what a shame. Uh, Jose, we have seen some of the worst abuses against undocumented people in a very long time. You're someone that has been on the front lines of fighting for undocumented people and for dreamers and for people who are just looking for an opportunity to have a life in this country in a country that is their only home, and a country that we have told people around the world to come to to get work and and start a life in an extra legal system that we're all complicit in building. Again, like, what are you feeling right now at this moment where we're sort of facing a lot of setbacks?
3: You know, it's really depressing when people ask me, how bad is it right now? This is kind of the bottom. So it's all uphill from here, right? And then when I get depressed, which I do a lot, Um, I just open up the fire next time in Notes of a Native Son, and I just remember that this is a country that's about resilience, and the fact that, you know, we're in L.A. Like, there's, what, 800,000 undocumented people in L.A. that make this whole area run? Isn't it amazing that they get up every day, and they go to work, and they drop the kids off to school, and under a government that doesn't want them and call them, like, they're insects off our backs? Like, it's amazing. Like, I think they represent the best in America. So. (laughs)
0: Molly, America didn't even make the World Cup Um, something I did find out from this card (laughs) I was was
4: saying I feel like that's a great punishment for America right now it's like everyone's enjoying soccer and America doesn't get to be part of that because we didn't earn it we have to just enjoy all the countries that Americans come from playing and be happy with that?
0: Tough. (laughs) Tough time. Look, we've just had this week of, you know, this terrible family separation news, this Kennedy news, the the upholding of this Muslim ban, not to mention rulings that will undermine workers' rights, that will undermine women's rights. There's a lot of people out there saying, no, we got to keep fighting, we got to stay hopeful, and I think that's right, but it's hard. It's hard when you feel like the cost of the 2016 election keeps getting worse, even though... We can't undo the horror of the decision, but we can watch as the decision gets worse and worse.
4: Well, I think it's a little back to the future, because it's also like all those things were happening in America before twenty sixteen and everyone's being forced to think about that now. It's not like America was great to undocumented immigrants ever in history and not beforehand, you know, not before the twenty sixteen election. I think now we're seeing it escalate and become more public and more violent and the way that racism happens is more violent but it's not new I think uh, what Jose was saying is true it's like America has always had a lot of real problems we're reckoning with all those problems right now but that's what makes me hopeful is maybe we're finally going to talk about them instead of pretending it doesn't exist
5: yeah, I also think there's something to be said about the cyclical nature of uh, d- you know, taking a break for your mental health and then also re-engaging when you feel ready because no one of us is ever going to be on the same wavelength with that. So as long as you're able to say like, I gotta step the fuck away and go like on a on a trip. I gotta go somewhere. I gotta get out of this town. And then when you come back really making a conscious effort to re engage, catch up on what you missed, that's how we'll kind of like we'll relay race each other, you know? I'll pass you the racism baton and then you can pick it up and you can run to the finish line and you can be like I'm fucking sick of these white people. And then you can hand it to her and she'll be like, I'm sick of these men. And, you know, we'll just trade it around.
0: Ugh, oh, that baton sucks.
5: Yeah. It's a bad baton. But, no, like, if you put it down, it turns into more batons. <laughs> <laughs> so you got to hold that shit so it doesn't reproduce, you know? This metaphor doesn't track, but thank you for laughing.
0: No, it's really good. It's really good. It's the baton that represents fighting racism and racism itself, and when you put it down, it produces... It makes sense. I don't think we should an- an analyze it.
5: Thank you so much. Don't cut a word out of this I segment. will not. Okay, I will
0: you. cut... The only part I will cut is anyone questioning it.
5: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Uh shitty fucking week. Now for a game we call Okay, Stop. Yay! <laughs> Why not? You guys know how it works. We roll a clip, and we stop and talk about it. We say, Okay, Stop, and then we can chat about whatever... We feel like it. Jesse Waters. He's like Ben Shapiro if he got his style tips from last decade's Queer Eye after a cement mixer <laughs> fell on his head. Jesse has something to say about civility and how the left are the only ones who have anything bad to say. That is say, on
2: them. That is not on when Donald you, Trump. He, if, you're, if you go to a Donald Trump rally and, you, and Donald Trump is standing up there and saying, I'll pay legal fees if any of you want to beat up some of these people. I mean, what is going on? We that's, all know that's... now that the people swinging were paid oh, protesters. OK, stop. stop.
5: I already have a problem with Jesse Waters' finger waving in that black man's face. Like, that finger is a little too, like, it's a lady asking for a manager already. And it, it, it created a, a feeling in me, just seeing that, the wave, the breadth of the wave. It goes far, you know?
0: Um, yes, and one thing to be aware of is there is apparently a permitting process for black people to be on Fox News, and Jesse Waters is calling the police oh. on one. <laughs> Because
5: that dude sold a bottle of water that, to him before the <laughs> tape rolled. Oof.
2: But the Donald, DNC, Trump, Donald Trump won. saying, oh, if, you, if, if Hillary Clinton is elected and, and points a Supreme Court judge who does anything to your gun rights, well, I guess you Second Amendment people have to take... I mean, come on, But Jesse. there hasn't been examples of oh, radical, Jesse. violent... Okay, stop.
0: <laughs> At a certain point, it's like, what, what are we doing, right? Because I feel like we spend a lot of time... T- saying obvious things about people who are lying on purpose, like there is no you know, there's that upton Sinclair line you can't convince somebody of something their livelihood depends on not believing. Like there's not like there's a set of words that Juan Williams can say to Jesse Waters at the end of which Jesse goes, "Oh, huh, I hadn't thought about it that way. <laughs> Donald Trump is a world historic prick, you know, and supporting him is indefensible, and I only do it because of a massive financial incentive structure built over decades that taught me, a craven, uh, ambitious person without very much intelligence or scruples, that if I wanted to make it in this world and not as a realtor or guy that would clearly fail out of Goldman Sachs, this was the path. I apologize. Now if you'll need me, I will go back and get the degree in communications my father always said I would get because he was insulting me.
5: And that's how Waters PR was born. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Harvey Weinstein is their new
2: client. Yeah. All right. And hateful Trump supporters separating. disrespecting people in public places like restaurants, like oh. is happening on oh, the other side. Oh, what do you call that lady getting run over a year ago in Charlottesville, Jesse? I think that... I it, wouldn't blame Donald Trump for that. Oh, that that's... Okay, stop.
0: <laughs> what are we gonna do with this on All the Ten? I don't
2: know. This is on
0: a show called The Five. That means there's three more of these people. <laughs> oh
5: God, I didn't there, know there, that.
0: Yeah, there's, 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 there's others.
5: I thought it was how many ties they each owned, like one in every primary color and then a fun one that's just like pure white. <laughs>
2: Oh, oh, I, see. Uh, I mean, Very I mean the problem is, so so how do you blame the restaurant owner? Nobody in the Democratic Party told the restaurant owner what to do. Wait a second. I, I, the people in the Democratic Party have been calling Trump a Nazi I, and say, I, and like Maxine, what saying? Right. I encourage you to go call people out to their face and refuse them service. I think I think yeah, we can. I black. blame
3: her. Didn't we used to do that? Like, not give people service because they were black or because they're gay and because. Uh, yeah. <laughs>
0: No, that's good though. That's good.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know what to do with these people,
5: John. I feel like you you've been doing this long enough. You should have an idea, right? We should look to you. Pressure. Yeah.
0: The answer for what to do to Fox News about Fox News is a really, really hard question because I think one of the things in the same way that we were often co- we were caught off guard by Kennedy retiring and what it actually meant when there being two Supreme Court justice seats open over the course of the first years of Trump's presidency were a pretty natural and expected result like we are aware of but can't really reckon with the damage that Fox News does every single day and the power it has i mean we say it and we know it's true but we can't accept it into our way of thinking about the world that the most important tv show on planet earth is Fox and Friends the most maybe the most important television show in human history is Fox and Friends the stupidest fucking show That's ever been created There's never I mean I don't know what could What could rival it
5: I'm sorry, I don't want anything with the word and friends to have that much influence on our global politics. Like, that's like saying, yeah, Captain Planet was the most, uh, you know, like that's not a, no, it should be something that's like smarts and justice. Like That should be the thing that has (laughs) the most influence. And you
0: spell out the and, none of this ampersand fucking bullshit. there
5: should not be a symbol in.
0: (laughs) I do think that one thing, I've definitely thought about getting myself on Fox and Friends. And then just being like, call Schumer, these people are lying to you, you can't trust Pence. (laughs)
5: <laughs> yes, just going full hackers, just going full Matthew Lillard and hackers, like there, jumping in front of yeah. the camera feed just and being like, get to a payphone,
0: dudes, you know? There's <laughs> like, if I said my cell phone number maybe one time, like I'd have to screen a bunch of calls. Yeah. I don't know. You can call Air Force One now anytime you want, so maybe that's worth trying. You're
3: like, no. they're controlling you through your mind. <laughs> don't oh, wear hats. I'm just curious. Has anybody here been on Fox News? Anyone? No. I go a lot on Fox News, Ooh. <laughs> like quite a bit, yes. Yeah. Um, well, I gotta say though, and I said this, I used to be a political reporter, and the moment Trump announced he was running for president, I told all my political reporter friends that he was gonna win. And everybody thought I was crazy. And since I am an undocumented gay Filipino guy with a Hispanic name, <laughs> who's been traveling all across this country, who majored in African-American studies in college, um, I can I can tell you right now that unless we figure out the Fox News thing, he is gonna win again. And this whole thing about like, we all just talk to people who all agree with us, this is like a big ass problem in this country. Disagree. Oh, well, uh, I can, okay, okay. (laughs) Oh, John, let's talk about this dude. Because like, I I feel really kind of crazy about all the white progressive people that I meet who want nothing to do with their white conservative friends and relatives. I'm kind of like, how much more weight do people of color have to carry around Right? And you all don't even talk to your relatives, right? So, So, like, I'd rather white people have, like, a white convention where, like, the white conservatives and the white. Careful, careful, careful. No, just, you (laughs) know, just, like, talk to each other and, like, work this out. You know what I mean? Like, I'm getting really tired of it. So, but, John, go ahead.
0: No, uh, look, I think that we cannot. We cannot forget persuasion. I do think a convention for all whites has mm. has had a historically bad outcome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We just did uh, a different way to phrase it. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, um, the second the word only is on the sign, you know where it's headed. But I think you're right, in, you're right that we shouldn't forswear people, and I do think that there's a lot of people who would rather argue on Twitter with strangers than have a conversation with relatives. Exactly. However, however... I do think that the media focus on a certain set of white voters has been extreme. And the reality is, and I think this is something we see when we see new voters coming to vote for someone like Ocasio-Cortez in New York or the campaigns or the enthusiasm for people like Beto in Texas or Stacey Abrams in Georgia, is I think that there's more value uh, in trying to get two people who didn't vote last time to vote than it is trying to get one person to change their mind, especially if they have made themselves almost impossible to convince. But yes, I think that convincing people who were disgruntled and voted for Trump and now regret it are a group of people that we can reach with a with a message that, that makes clear that we understand just how frustrated and how much change they want. But that is the message that we should be using, not because it will reach the people we need to persuade, but because it will reach the people who have turned off the process altogether. That the story we need to tell is a story for disenfranchised people who thought politics wasn't for them. Um, And if that sweeps up the kind of people we should be persuading as well, I think that's a really good thing, that's all. That's what I think about that. Um, But I will tell you, I've had many, look, I've had arguments within my own family about what Trump represents and whether or not it's racist to support Trump and why it is. And there was an Italian restaurant in uh, Brooklyn, New York, that was all very aware of the conversation happening at my family's table uh, in September of 2016. It got loud, um, but uh, only for a brief moment because then the chicken parm came. Um, <laughs> Molly, anything, Dad?
4: I don't know. I feel like I haven't had to argue with my own family members, but I've definitely fallen into the trap of arguing with people on Twitter about stuff.
0: How's that been going for you? Never good. <laughs> A lot of uh, minds changed. A lot of parts open. You know,
4: I'm always getting in arguments about Nazis in the space program. <laughs> Do
0: you want to unpack that at all? Well, what? First of all, are there? Were there? And what? Oh
4: yeah, so many. Oh my God, we what, took all the rocket scientists from from Nazi Germany. There was something called Operation Paperclip.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah,
4: where they took and so the. Is what, this for real, or yeah. It, yeah, yeah. It's all real. I mean, that's the thing. I think kind of what, what Tawny's dad was saying, who we should all listen to, <laughs> is if, you know, I find it kind of comforting to look at history and be like, oh, everything's always been terrible.
5: That is comforting. That's yeah. Nice.
4: <laughs> Feels good. Like, in some ways, it's, like, better than it's been in other times, you know? If, if you're, like, a woman or a person of color or a queer person, it seems like it's definitely also been worse before, you know? Things yeah. were, were never, like, good.
0: I will also say that I always took the fact that we turned the Nazi missile program of Germany into the American space program as something inspiring. because <laughs> No, sincerely, because, because they had this advanced rocket program that we had a lot to learn from, and we took it, and then we used it to understand the universe and create some of the most incredible achievements in human history. All
4: right, here's, here's where I get into the argument. This idea that we had to like pardon all those people and put them in the American space program to protect the sanctity of those ideas. It's like, we could have put them in jail.
5: I also don't like the idea of like an extraterrestrial, the first human they meet is a Nazi.
0: <laughs> well, hold on a second. We didn't put them on the fucking rockets, all right? We kept them- <laughs> Who did we put up we, there? Non-Nazi Americans. Well, but you know
4: where we moved them to is Alabama to bring it back. So where'd the
0: Nazis go? Where'd we put them? We moved them to Huntsville. All right. Here's what's going to happen now. Um, (laughs) Molly, I hear you. I'm going to continue to allow myself to believe that we took an evil weapons program and used it to understand the universe, inspire a generation of people to go into space, and because it's my show, I can say, and that's okay, stop.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Hey, don't go anywhere. There's more of Love It or Leave It coming up.
0: Love It or Leave It is brought to you by WikiHole on Wondery. Do you know when Crystal Pepsi was discontinued, what was in Al Capone's vault, or which famous meteorologist is Lenny Kravitz's second cousin? If not, then you haven't spent enough time on Wikipedia, but that's okay because you can learn all about it on the new podcast WikiHole from Smartless Media. Discover the craziest rabbit holes on Wikipedia with host Darcy Carton and her favorite comedian friends as they bring the cyber frontier directly to your tympanic membrane. We Love Darcy.
1: Love Darcy.
0: And if you listen to Wikihole, you learn that is the sciencey term for eardrum. Wikihole is a hyperlink roller coaster starting out on one Wikipedia page and then going from link to link to link, careening through trivia oddities and unexpected connections until everyone wonders how the hell did we get here? Follow Wikihole on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Wikihole ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.
3: And we're back.
0: Donald Trump is president. Republicans control Congress. The world is not doing very well. unfortunately for you... <laughs> All right, I'm just going to read it. You guys ready? Just brace yourselves. The world is burning, but unfortunately it's also burning when you pee. But the good news is no one can deny you health coverage thanks to the Affordable Care Act, a.k.a. <laughs> AKA Obamacare, a.k.a. Dr. Obama death panel <laughs> But if they, can, but if Republicans get their way, people with would...
4: <laughs> wait,
5: I need you to say that last sentence again <laughs> because you know it flew by so fast and it's delicious.
0: Tawny, will you just, yeah, you yeah, just just start from the beginning and you'll just read these two cards. Okay.
5: <laughs> Donald Trump is president. Republicans control Congress. The world is burning. Unfortunately for you, it's also burning when you pee. But the good news is, no one can deny you health coverage thanks to the Affordable Care Act, aka Obamacare, aka Dr. Obama Death Panel Orama. But if Republicans get their way, people with fiery urethras won't be the only ones who can't afford a doctor visit.
0: <laughs> yes. Thank you. Thank you, Tawny. Anytime. Yes, Republicans are once again trying to do away with Obamacare and its protections for pre-existing conditions. So we thought we'd highlight some of these pre-existing conditions in a game we are calling Pre-existing Condition or Just Watching the News. Would someone out there like to play the game? Hi, what's your name? Jesse. Jesse. Yes. Good. Great. Um all right, Jesse, are you from LA? What's your deal? Orange County. Orange County? You seem like you're in a good mood. That means you're fucked up. What's up? (laughs) Just a couple drinks. Okay, good. Good, good, good. All right, Jesse. Your job is to figure out which of these is a pre-existing condition Republicans want to take away health care for, and which is just something that happened to you because you've been watching the news for the past month. (laughs) If it's a pre-existing condition, say pre-existing condition. If it's the news, say news. You ready, Jesse? I'm ready. Cancer. Pre existing condition. Drug I- <laughs> Drug addiction. Pre existing condition. Fell in the bathtub and agitated a slip disc after doing a shower cry for twenty minutes straight. <laughs> Too much TV. Asthma. Pre existing condition. Immediately going blind while looking at your Twitter feed. <laughs> Too much news. Breaking your fingers after typing too hard on the office slack about how the administration isn't going to do anything about global warming That we need to at least switch off our office light bulbs. And I also, and also, I know that Lillian is the one eating my granola. <laughs> too much news. Organ transplant. Pre-existing condition. Burn through your vocal cords after calling every single rep in the country multiple times. Too much news. Decrease in essential vitamins after sending my entire collection of fish oil and supplements to Ruth Bader Ginsburg. <laughs> <laughs> the exact right amount of news. Diabetes. Pre existing condition. Acne. <laughs> Pre existing condition. Ran through a glass plate window because you thought you saw a glimmer of hope outside. <laughs> Too much news. Migraines. Pre existing condition. Migraines from headbutting your TV while Tucker Carlson was talking about the war on men. Too much news. <laughs> Threw out your back while picking up the TV you headbutted while Tucker Carlson was talking about <laughs> the war on men. Too much news. Obesity. Pre-existing condition. Pregnancy. Pre-existing condition. And IQ below 70. (laughs) Pre-existing condition. Yeah. Broke out into highs because you're allergic to the apocalypse. (laughs) (laughs) Too much news. And finally, anxiety or depression? Pre-existing condition. No, it's it's a trick question. It's both. Ah. Uh, (laughs) Jesse, you've won the game. (laughs) When we come back, and a parachute gift card for Jesse, when we come back... The Rant Wheel.
1: Don't go anywhere. This is Love It or Leave It, and there's more on the way.
0: we're back (laughs) now for the rant wheel here's how it works we spin the wheel wherever it lands we rant about the topic this week on the wheel we have people saying quote Hillary warned us (laughs) selfie murals we have people talking about judges being in the mold of other judges farm to fork lifetime appointments hiking while brown the Olympics and immigration media coverage let's spin the wheel (laughs) It has landed on Farm to Fork. Uh, Farm to Fork has been in the news lately because of uh, the Red Hen and their desire to not force their employees to serve the worst human beings to work in the White House in a generation (laughs) and doing so in the most polite manner possible, which included giving Sarah Huckabee Sanders a free cheese plate for their trouble. They have been threatened on the internet nonstop for a very long time because of civility. Uh, however, and again, not the biggest issue. I think this farm to fork thing doesn't make any sense. I don't know what other kinds of food there are, but if you can find it, if you find a piece of broccoli that didn't start on a fo- farm of some kind, I'd love to meet it. It's all farm to fork. What isn't farm to fork? I don't understand. You're not on the farm. Like, What does it mean? Like, It definitely was on a truck or some kind of a vehicle to get to you in the same way that all the broccoli is. Like, less time for between farm and fork? What if it's a soup? Again, <laughs> there's nothing in that soup that didn't start on a farm. It's just not, what, what? Find me what, what are you talking
5: about? That's farm to spoon, it's bro, I'm free. just saying. <laughs> I'm not like an archeologist, but I know the difference between a fork and a spoon.
0: Tawny, I want you to know something that just happened, which is you were a fucking sniper yeah. because, <laughs> because you said it. Uh-huh. Then you let me be so stupid for so long. I just, and then you just went, tss, and a thousand yards away, pff, I died. Oh, this broccoli came from close by. I don't give a shit. <laughs> Am I supposed to? I guess I'm supposed to. Now I gotta care how close the broccoli was started. I
5: feel like, yeah, because broccoli from far away gets lonely, right? <laughs> so like, you want it to feel like yeah. at
0: home. Farm to fork.
5: I'm for it.
0: <laughs> Let's spin it again. <laughs> it has landed on hiking while brown, which Tawny suggested. I did. Um, If you're
5: brown and you like to hike and go in the out of doors and more explicitly go on like long backpacking trips or be places that are deemed adventure destinations like Desolation Wilderness or the Redwoods or Death Valley, you know that the amount of times you get approached by helpful, well-meaning, outdoorsy, white people is... (laughs) It just, it it is a weight that we have to bear heavier than any 70 liter backpack. Because so many people are so confused to see us there that I believe even the most well-meaning people that are like maybe overjoyed to see black people, you know, bivouacking or whatnot, they want to help. And they want to tell you that the waterfall you're seeking is just 30 yards away. And you're like, yeah, bitch, I got the same map you do. And it makes me crazy because I get stopped so many times in the wilderness and it just it it lessens my enjoyment I'm going out into the nature to get away from all people to get away from every I just want to see a bear I want to be scared for my life and I don't want someone telling me oh hey you know this trail actually can get kind of uh, scary after dark make sure you have enough water I know dude I know to have water it's a drought all over California I don't go to CVS without water in my jeep so I just, you know, this is, this is coming out after the 4th of July weekend when people are going to be in the out of doors. But I just want to say, if you're an outdoorsy person and you go out into the world and you see brown people, even if it's coming from a nice place, resist the urge to help because 17 motherfuckers just helped me before you. And it makes me crazy. Again, not the biggest issue, but like I just want to see some trees in peace.
0: I think this is a that was a wonderful rant. I am a little worried that some very well-meaning person is going to step over a lost hiker who's dying of (laughs) thirst because like I'm just trying to be the best person I can and I just want to respect what I've learned and and just listen to other voices and so
5: just stepping over a fallen brown person. (laughs) (laughs) I respect your journey.
0: Let's spin it again. <laughs> it has landed on the Olympics.
4: Guys, I can talk about why the Olympics are bad all day. I don't know how much time you've got, but uh, did you know the Olympics are a national special security event, which means that when they take over a city, that just like Homeland Security takes over the whole city? Oh, that's bad. Seems like it'd be really bad for Los Angeles, right?
0: Let's do the whole Olympic rant all at once because you you started on it. But so so you have this organization, No Olympics.
4: Yeah, it's a local organization formed out of DSALA, the Democratic Socialists, of LA. It's uh, just a lot of the issues we care about about immigration justice, vulnerable people getting displaced, and we've talked to a lot of activists in places like Rio, uh, Japan, and Korea. We've just met people that have had problems all over the world because of the Olympics.
0: So you think the Olympics would be bad for L.A.?
4: Oh, yeah, for sure. Because um, they're going to speed up gentrification and displacement. They're going to use it as an excuse to sweep homeless people out of neighborhoods where they live uh, and arrest them. That's what happens wherever they go. Uh, my grandmother was a Jewish athlete who was supposed to be in the 1936 Olympics and was on the German team and was eventually uh, cut from the team because she was a Jew. But the Nazis were kind of you know, deciding whether or not to keep token Jews on the team uh, you know I think about the Olympics a lot and
5: uh, (laughs) I'm going to now as well this shit's (laughs) messed up
4: man. Uh, and one thing that I like to bring up is that just a lot of the Olympic traditions come from the Nazi Olympics in 1936 which were the first ones that were ever on TV and they uh, invented the torch relay for the 1936 Olympics but they also um, passed the Olympics in 1932 before the Nazis were in charge when it was still Weimar Germany and then by the time it happened the whole political climate had changed, so you can see how that might also be applicable now, when it feels like, who can predict what's going to happen in the next year, let alone by 2028 in Los Angeles?
0: You are bringing Nazis into a few areas.
4: <laughs> but you know what? That I think I love. I think this is. I think this is part of the civility argument. Is that these Nazis or these neo-Nazis sympathizers are saying, don't call us Nazis. If you call us Nazis, you're crossing a line, but then they're like putting children in cages and it's like, well, when do we start calling them Nazis?
0: No, I, I agree with that. (laughs) I'm just more frustrated by the, the Nazi issues You're associating with things I like, like the Olympics and going to space.
4: I know. I'm here.
0: (laughs) Like, I like those things. To take
4: all the fun out of things you love. But the truth is that, you know, we're not against like world sporting events. Mostly we're against the International Olympic Committee, which is
0: uh, a rogue's
4: gallery of corruption. Henry Kissinger's on it. Kind of everyone bad in history is involved. Nazis Uh, weren't
0: involved with Settlers of Catan, were they?
4: I don't know, are you into risk? Because I feel like... Don't take
0: away risk. All right. Goebbels went to the first escape room. (laughs) Let's spin it again. (laughs) It has landed on immigration media coverage suggested by...
3: Four years ago, I was actually arrested in McAllen at the border, and I was put in the same jail cell as where the kids are at now. Uh, they separated us by gender, so I, I usually don't talk about this, but hey, <laughs> we're here, so I've had two drinks. Um, so the boys, I was with the boys, clearly, and then the girls, and then the adults. For some reason, they put me with the boys. It was maybe between the ages of 5 to 14. And by the way, it's a jail cell. It's not a detention center. It's actually a jail cell. And I don't know, like, everything is happening so fast by the tweet that, like, we have forgotten that we have lost, what, 2,300 kidnapped kids? Where the hell are the kids, right? The executive order that Trump signed didn't guarantee that they were going to be reunited with their parents. I got to tell you, though, when I was in that cell looking at, like, the faces of the boys who walked, right? From Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador. And I remember back then in 2014, we didn't call them refugees. Even Obama didn't call them refugees. And I think CBS News said they were like illegal immigrant children. And the thing that I could could stop looking were were their shoes. Because you know their shoes were like Nike, Reebok, Adidas, knockoffs. Like you know how this country, like globalization, and we sell these countries like McDonald's and Starbucks and Nike shoes, and then how dare them come here? Right? Like, we've forgotten that, like, we've caused all those wars in El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras, and then we dare ask them why they're here. So maybe, like, picking up a history book and, like, understanding that we are here because you were there. We are here because you were there. That's why we're here. It's way more complicated than the Statue of Liberty and the American dream and the dream of a better life. Right now. To my colleagues in the media, because I am a journalist who just happens to be undocumented, can you all fucking stay on top of this story? Where the hell are these kids? Where are they? I'm gonna tell you though, if these kids were Canadian white kids, it would be a humanitarian crisis. Disneyland would get involved, right? I mean, seriously. So at Define American, the organization that I help run, we actually have a campaign called Reunite the 2300. Right? So check out DefineAmerican.com and please, you know, these are our kids. Let's, you know, think about them.
0: (laughs) Let's spin it again. Oh yeah, this is a good place to end it. Let's end it on a light and unimportant note because it has landed on selfie murals. So have you seen this story about the fact that there is an influencer-only selfie mural in L.A.? where you have to have a certain number of Instagram followers to get a picture taken there. Uh, I think that's really good. Um, uh, Because I think it's really important that we separate the wheat from the chaff when it comes to selfie murals and who's allowed in front of them. Uh, There's a lot of people taking pictures in front of that Paul Smith store, uh, in front of Rainbows, in front of hearts. is it Paul Smith? Yeah, there's the Made in LA one. There's the Made in LA one. There's a lot of people taking those pictures and it is making it less exclusive and I think that has to change um, because it's like, what does a selfie mural mean if, if anyone can take a picture in front of it? You know? know.
5: We're denigrating the meaning of selfie murals by just allowing anyone to do it.
0: Has anyone here ever had the impulse or actually followed through with the impulse to take a picture in front of a wall that is there because people take pictures in front of that wall? Yeah. Has anyone even part of this Ouroboros I love when I hear just a gay voice come out from the crowd. When I just hear an obviously, and it makes me so happy. A gay voice from the crowd of Love or Leave It can change my mind about anything. A gay voice, I was yelling about the royal wedding and somebody yelled, but the dress! And, And then I was like, I forgot that there would be a dress. And now that I'm thinking about it, I'm excited to see the dress. But then ultimately I was proven correct because are we ready to talk about how the dress was just okay? Are we ready? Are we why ready? Why are you doing that?
5: Oh, I'll go further. The dress was dull as fuck. The dress was bad. It was dull. It wasn't a good cut. Thank you. This is why I came here. You're a princess. You're a princess in a in a sheath. How dare you.
0: You look wrinkly.
5: It did look wrinkly. That fabric never irons. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but And I know that was the look, but it looked messy in a way that I didn't think worked. The Meghan Markle dress didn't work. And I know this started about selfie murals, but it's been a very hard week. <laughs> and I don't care. So let's just sum up, okay? The Meghan Markle dress didn't work. Selfie murals are a sign of societal decline.
5: Don't uh, tell me where the waterfall is. Don't
0: tell Tawny where the waterfall is. These are the important things. Uh, A lot of stuff you love is way, way more connected to Nazism than you realized. Uh, Stuff that you thought was super cool that you look forward to in a deep way that helps you get through the parts of your life that aren't as good. Molly's swooping in to let you know that that shit's fucked too. So if you thought you were going to watch a person do a triple Lutz and escape from politics for two seconds and have a pure moment of watching somebody do something incredible with the human form at a time in which human beings are treating each other like absolute shit, Molly's coming in to say, there's one more thing that should be on your mind right fucking now. (laughs) Hey, are you watching a a very handsome man do incredible loop-de-loops as he dives into a pool? Hitler made this happen. That's Molly.
4: I'll take it.
0: (laughs) And that's the rant wheel. Let's end on a high note. Obviously, this has been a tough couple weeks. And one thing that I was thinking about is about The way in which people like Ronna Romney McDaniel, who's the head of the RNC, and other Republicans spent a lot of time policing each other for not showing enough fealty to Donald Trump and not going along with the program. And what it reminded me of is, is the fact that there's nothing that makes a dirty cop more nervous than a clean cop, because a clean cop didn't take the money. And a clean cop tells a dirty cop that actually that dirty cop had a choice, and maybe that dirty cop has been lying to himself about the choices he had or didn't have. But because there's a clean cop, it means you could have been a clean cop too. Uh, And Donald Trump is a human bribe. And uh, uh, McConnell and Ryan and they took the money and they're getting their payout right now. And I think one of the reasons they fight so viciously is because they're dirty. And when you're dirty and when you sell your soul to get something, if you don't get it, it makes it all the worse, which is why the fight feels so much more vicious. The reason they're willing to put everything on the line is because they know how much of their soul they had to give up to be where they are and to get what they're getting from this awful person. This segment's called Ending on a High Note. <laughs> Uh, (laughs) And we're going to get there, so in Slate, Lily Loofboro, which is a fantastic name, (laughs) Loofboro, but she wrote a piece in Slate that I think people should read, and she talks about the Republicans and how they've behaved, and she says this, Those in power have cut off diplomatic relations with the country they're meant to govern and the party they're meant to govern with. The point of no return polarization that pundits still feebly warn against is already here. It is sad, and it is true. What is happening is bad. It is obvious what they're doing. We can call it for what it is. And I feel like a lot of us have had this feeling of like hopelessness in just the past week, but I think it's maybe good. And it's good because we're killing the false hope. You know, We're killing the hope that didn't count. The same hope that allowed us to pretend that Donald Trump couldn't win instead of what was the truth, which is that he could. And it may have been unlikely, but it was more likely than we could accept. It's the same false hope that allowed us to pretend that Supreme Court retirements weren't looming or that Donald Trump wouldn't do exactly what he said on immigration. And so maybe what's happening right now is even now we were complacent in ways we didn't realize. And even now we actually were making the same mistake we made in 2016, which is to believe that things couldn't get worse because of how bad worse would feel. One thing that is coming out of this is the realization that we accepted a shitty politics from ourselves because we believed it was what was necessary to win, and that was our own version of being dirty cops, right? We had to make a deal to win. And the deal was, here's what it means to be electable. Here's what you have to do to get through to the kind of people you have to win if you, want to, if you want to become president because you need these states and you need these voters and this is what it means. You can't be for Medicare for all. It's not electable. You have to be for a compromiser. You can't be for universal college. You have to be for something more practical, more affordable because people will say it's, uh, it's not something that will ever pass. And we made that dirty deal and then we lost everything. Um, And I think one of the things we're doing is throwing out that kind of politics and saying, if the electable policies led to the greatest route of Democrats up and down the ballot from the presidency to the local level, what did it mean to be electable? Maybe we should try the non-electable thing and maybe we'll win some elections. And we have to leave it there. I wanna thank this incredible panel Tawny Newsome, Jose Antonio Vargas, and Molly Lambert. Thank you guys so much for coming out. Have a great night.